to continue our series today entitled Rethinking the Church. We've been thinking about what it takes for a church to be healthy and what makes a church healthy. And last week we started by looking at uh, the church at Antioch and we talked about some things that the church has to embrace if they're going to be strong. And we talked about the priority of evangelism and the priority of telling people uh, about what Christ has done in our life. This week we're going to spend some time uh, rethinking about what does it mean to be a part of the church? What does it mean for you as an individual believer to be a part of a body of Christ? If you listen to conversations about church, you might think the answer is not much. It doesn't really mean much. You might conclude that being part of a church is not really that important. You hear people say things like, I, I, I don't go to church. I, I just don't get anything out of it. Or you hear people say, I used to be active, but, you know, the, the new music, you know, it's just not my style. Or you'll hear someone say, I, I don't attend any church regularly. I enjoy hearing multiple voices or watching multiple services on the Internet. And then if somebody's real spiritual, they'll say, I love Jesus, but I just don't like church. These statements are everywhere in America. And it shouldn't surprise us because those statements are very American. Uh, we are people who believe in personal choice. We are people who are strong individualists. We're a society of consumers, and it's natural uh, for us to think that way as Americans. That's a part of what makes us American, our, our system. And it only makes sense that we would think that way about church, but the problem is... I don't believe that's how God intended for us to think about church. In many ways, the way we think in America is harming the way that we think about God's people. The New Testament picture of church is far from a consumeristic mindset. You know, it's not a group of people who say, oh, I like that service, or I like that preacher, or I like that style of music, but not that one. That's not pictured anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, there's not a, there was not a Google review platform where people would come on and say, oh, man, powerful worship, you know, friendly people, short preacher. There was nothing like that in the New Testament church. They also were not just a crowd of spectators. They didn't believe that it was their job to come and watch the show. They believed that they were to actively be a part of community. And it definitely was not pictured as a group of disconnected individuals. Uh, the picture that the New Testament paints about the church is a group of people who are fiercely loyal and a group of people who are completely invested in one another. Uh, and, and there were two images that the New Testament used consistently to show who we're supposed to be as a people of God. One of those images was the human body. In 1 Corinthians 12, a passage I almost preached on this morning, you have this picture of, of the human body representing the church of Jesus Christ. And as a hand needs the arm to function properly and the arm needs the hand to function properly, the, the members of a congregation need one another. Uh, we're a part of this uh, body together, and we need each other to be help, uh, healthy. And, and without each other, we're not complete. We're dependent on each other. But then the other picture in the New Testament about 
church is that we're a family. Uh, the Bible talks about God as Father, and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we help each other grow. We're loyal to each other. We care for each other in the good and the bad. And these two thoughts should guide our thinking about church. Uh, and both of these thoughts are found in Romans chapter 12. So I encourage you to turn in your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at this chapter, verse 1 through 16. Uh, but I'll highlight that they talk about as we have many parts in our physical body and all these parts don't have the same function in the church, in the body of Christ, we, there's a lot of individuals, but we join together to make up one body. He also uses the analogy of family later on in Romans 12 verse 10 when he says that we should love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. That's the relationship that we're supposed to have with one another. Now, we're going to walk just verse by verse through this chapter, but before we do, let me set the context for you. The book of Romans is maybe my favorite book in the New Testament because it lays out so clearly what we believe about salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, the book of Romans is a deep uh, uh, book. It, it is so... Uh, um, applicable in any society, and its focus is solely on Christ. But when you open the book of Romans, it doesn't start with a good picture. Romans 1 through 3 paints the picture of humanity as sinful and separated from God. And it's not just people who have never heard of Jesus or who live in faraway countries. It's every person everywhere, religious and non-religious, are separated from God. And there's Nothing that, that makes us good. In fact, the Bible says there's none who are good. No, not one. And all of us, Romans 3 says, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then you get to the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, and it talks about what God did. We had this problem. Our sin separated us from God. But God, in his great mercy, gave Christ to us who would stand in our place, take our sin, and if we put our faith and trust in him instead of ourselves, we can be made right with God. And so you had this beautiful picture in uh, chapters 4 through 6 about being justified in Christ and how we're a new person in Christ. But then Paul almost pauses for a second in chapter 7 and says, but even those of us who are new people, we still sometimes struggle with our sin, but our hope is not in our ability to keep the law, and our hope is not in our ability to be good. All of our hope is in Christ. And so in chapter 8, he says, there's nothing that's going to separate us from the love of God in Christ. He will redeem us. He will keep us for himself. And then you get to chapter 9. And in chapter 9 of Romans, he kind of switches gears and he starts talking in 9 through 11 about what about people who are not Jewish? What does God do for them? And he talks about how God chose the Jewish people and they were a special people and he, 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 he longs to bring salvation to them. But the Bible says in Romans 10 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that, that beautiful picture of salvation brings us to chapter 12 and you find a turning point in the book. And in chapter 12, he starts saying, this is how this should affect those of us who believe. And we come to verse 1. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercy of God, because of everything God did for you in Jesus Christ, in light of this, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Lay your life down for him. Because he loves you, because your heart is captured for Jesus, 
because you know that you can rest in him and you're secure in him, lay your life down for him. Give your life to him. He goes on in verse 2 to say, don't be conformed to this world. Your thinking should be different if you're in Christ. You don't think like lost people anymore. You're not just driven by whatever culture you're in. You are transformed by the renewing of your mind. And regardless of whether you are a Christian in America or a Christian in Iran, we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ, and he is changing the way that we think. Not only the way that we think about his truth and his way, it also changes the way we think about ourselves. For by the grace given to me, I tell every one of you, don't think more highly of yourself than you should. Well, you're talking about every culture everywhere. People put themselves at the center of the universe, and they believe that it revolves around them. But when we're Christians, we're different. We believe that the world revolves around our God. And we believe that it is for his glory that he created us. And so we're not puffed up and we don't think too much about ourselves. Instead, we think sensibly. God's given us faith to believe in him. And we think sensibly not only about ourselves, but also about one another. And then he gets to verse 4. And he says, now as we have many parts in one body. And all of these parts in our body, hands, eyes, ears, don't have the same function. That's the way it is in the church. We are one body in Christ, and individually, we are members of one another. Starting here at verse 4 and 5, he starts talking about our connection to one another and what it means to live as a believer in community with other believers. And he paints a picture of what the church is and how we relate. And he gives us some characteristics of a healthy community. Now, every community has a center. Every community has something that binds it together. This is true for a quilting community. They're bound around their quilting. It's true of soldiers. They become a band of brothers. It's true of people who survive a catastrophe. It's true of people who uh, go to sporting events. I'll never forget a few years ago. I believe it was Jesse and I were at the Mississippi State game. For years, the football team had been known for disappointing their fans. If you've been a Kentucky fan for long, that's where we were for about 40 years. But it seemed like things were getting better. And it seemed like we were turning the corner. And we were playing Mississippi State, and they were supposedly better than us. And it was a tight game. And it, they had gone ahead of us right at the end of the game. And you could hear, hear the crowd groan, and here we go again. But we got the ball back with about a minute to go. I believe Steven Johnson was the quarterback at that time, and he drove us down the field. Well, it was the late game on SEC Network. And for those of y'all who know, that starts at 7.30 our time with TV timeouts and everything usually gets over about midnight our time, and it's on Saturday night. And I had someplace to be Sunday morning. <laughs> so I said, Jesse, we got to go. we got to get out in front of the crowd. We can't do an hour waiting. So we start going down from our seats, and we happen to end up with about 20 seconds to go right even with the field goal. And I said, Let, just... Let's stay here for just a second. That we get there, the kicker kicks this 51-yard field goal. We're watching it go through the air, and we're dead on. It went over by about that much. I believe it's Austin McGinnis. Kicked the field goal, went over by about that much. The fans go crazy. We run out of the stadium, and as I'm running out, a guy grabs me by the head and kissed me. <laughs> Community's built around a lot of things. <laughs> and in the church, our community is built 
around Christ. This is what our community is centered around. His name should fill our conversations. He's the object of our worship. He should be the source of our joy. We should be overjoyed in the fact that Christ has brought us together. But here's what troubles me. It's obvious that a lot of people in churches don't see Jesus as their center. He's not their glue. Through my life in the pastorate, I've seen people who their glue seemed to be the style of music. I've seen some people who the glue was the dress code. I've seen other people whose glue was the response to social issues. I've seen others who were, seemed to be held together by the way you responded to COVID. I've seen others who seem to be held together by the way you voted. What holds us together is not how we vote, but who we are in Christ. That is what holds us together. We share a common experience. Christ is what we share, and we are, the, the Bible says, we are in Christ. We are held together in Christ. Back over here to my box of things. You have to go to seminary to understand this in Christ stuff. And what I'm about to tell you is highly technical, but I believe you can get it. Are you ready? This is a ball. All right, you got that? This is a ball. This is a bucket. Whenever I put this ball here, it is in the bucket. Man, you are like amazing. I tell people you are the smartest congregation I've ever preached to. It is in the bucket. The ball is in the bucket. The word in describes the state or position of one thing in relation to another. When we talk about being in Christ, we're saying our status has changed. The ball is in the bucket. The check is in the mail. UK basketball is in the toilet. You know, we, we talk about those things like normally... So when we say we are in Christ, we are saying that we are positionally in him. It is our status. Now, this is an imperfect illustration, but bear with me. Wherever the bucket goes, the ball is there. No matter what I do with this, the ball is there. Y'all got that? So if I were to lose the bucket the ball would be lost. If I were to swing the bucket, the ball is swinging. The ball is positioned. Its status is connected to the bucket. We are positioned in Christ, and our status is connected to Christ. And when we move our trust from ourselves and put our faith in Christ, we receive the benefits of being in him. And wherever he is and whoever he is, we are. That's the way the Bible teaches this. Paul uses this in Christ phrase or in him or in Jesus over a hundred times. This is a big concept. This is not minor. You have to get this. Your salvation is not in you. Your salvation is in Christ. We are in Christ. That is our status. And because of that, we have grace in Christ. Uh, unmerited favor from God because of Jesus. We have forgiveness in Christ. Because we're in Christ, we are forgiven, and we have the capacity to forgive. 
We are justified in Christ. I never have to wonder about my standing with God. Because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I am always seen through the lens of Jesus. I'm in Christ, and God judges me through Christ. The Bible teaches that we are made new in Christ. He gives us this newness in life because of Jesus. We have eternal life in Christ. And then we know that we will always have the love of God because of our position in Christ. But in Christ is incomplete if you just think about it positionally or as a status. In Christ also has to do with a relationship. When we are in Christ, we now have relationship with him, a living relationship that changes you. It changes how you live. Man, I want to live like Jesus. I'm in him. I have all the benefits of being in him, but now I want to be like him. I want to experience uh, the, the, the Christ life through me. It, ex- it changes how you think. It changes what you value. If you're in relationship with Jesus, what is important to Jesus becomes important to you. Did, let me re- say that again. If you are in relationship with Jesus, what is important to him moves up on your priority list. Also, who is important to him becomes important to you. Due to the fact that I married my wife, Kelly, I got a new mom, two new sisters, a new brother, and two more nephews. That just happened. Because... When I got married to her, her relationships extended to me. When we moved into Christ, simply put, I now have a relationship with everybody who he considers his family. And that's you. Every believer. Verse 5 continues. I love this. It says, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ. And he could have easily said, and we are members of one another. But he didn't. He said we are individually members of one another, and I think there's a lesson to be learned from that, and that is a healthy church is going to have people who look different and who have different gifts and skill sets. A healthy church recognizes that that our individuality doesn't end when we come together. A part of what makes the church so unique is he takes people from all different races, all different cultures, all different socioeconomic statuses, and he blends them together into the body of Christ. But what's unique to me is while we're all seeking to be conformed to the image of Jesus, he maintains our individuality. Notice verse 6. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. It's almost like Paul's saying, God intentionally made us different. God intentionally keeps us different. He goes uh, on to say, some people serve, some people teach, some people encourage, some people give, some people lead, some people show mercy. And this is it's just a small sampling of the gift list that's found in the New Testament. What Paul is saying there is we all have different gifts because of, our, uh, 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 of who we are and how God has made us. But that's not the only thing we have different. We have different personalities. We have different passions. 
we have different experiences and we come to this differently. So when we tell our testimony while we're all saved in Christ, it, it looks so different for so many people. We have different skill sets. There's no such thing as a typical church member. And I think it's safe to say that's why God wants it, the way God wants it. Why though? Why does God care about our individuality? I, I, I've come up with three reasons. Number one, these are not in your notes. These are just things I'd like to share with you. Number one, our individuality makes us dependent upon one another and keeps us humble. I know me, and I am not capable of doing everything required to live uh, in a way that pleases God. I'm unorganized often. Uh, sometimes I am impatient. Sometimes I need people who have skills of mercy because my mercy's not always on the highest of my gift list. And I need people who have those things. And, and when I look at a situation and I feel so ill-equipped to handle it, God invariably puts somebody in my path who, who has those giftings. And all of a sudden, I'm humbled because I need other people and I'm amazed that God has put the church together so perfectly that he provides for those things. So that's one. I think another is just to celebrate God's power. God can save the girl who came to Sunday school and was the compliant first child just as easy uh, as he can uh, save anyone else. And he can save the prodigal who wasn't the compliant first child. That should make us celebrate that God brings us in uh, to the same community from different backgrounds and our different failures. And I think we just enjoy him more. How boring would the church be if everybody was like you or like me? I mean, I'm glad that God has created a variation uh, within the church. The third thing that I see in this passage, and he moves into this section starting in verse 9 down to about verse 14, where he talks about how a healthy church has people who are in it who work for one another. They're on each other's side. He gives very straightforward advice to how we can keep the church strong. He starts out by saying, don't be a hypocrite. Let love be without hypocrisy. Be open. Be transparent. Don't pretend. Don't live behind a dark mask. He says in the last part of verse 9, detest what is evil and cling to what is good. Notice he doesn't say hate what is hate who is evil or detest who is evil. He says detest what is evil. I would even go so far to say that you can't love deeply without hating proportionately. Think about it. If you love your kids, you hate what drugs might do to them. If you love your kids, you hate how they might be hurt. And if you're in God's family, I hate things that threaten you. That's why uh, we have to continue to proclaim a sexual ethic that is different. Why do we do that? Because what is being taught and has been taught is harmful. For those of you who, almost everybody in here, you were raised in a time where the, the sexual mores in our country were far from what God's standard is. We hate those things because of what they do to people. We hate materialism. And all of us in America have been sold this lie year after year after year that more is better. More is better. More is priceless. 
And yet, it seems like those who are in a constant pursuit of more find themselves with a diminishing contentment and their souls seem to become hardened. And that's why I also have to address a take-it-or-leave-it attitude about church because I know it's killing the American church. It's killing us. He tells us to love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. In my last church, I had a lady who worked with women's ministry in our small groups. She directed those things. She was uber-talented. She was in the room with our pastors when we made decisions, and, and sometimes I would come up with an idea, and she would push back, and she was opinionated. Or if you're watching this today, I, I might have been opinionated. But she wouldn't mind telling me what she thought about my opinions. And sometimes we would kind of go at it. And one of the other staff members said, y'all act like brothers and sisters. And what she really meant was, y'all act like, y'all fight like cats and dogs. But I want to tell you, I've never had a person in my church or on my staff who was any more loyal than that person. When we left the office and discussed and went forward, we were together. And I knew that she had my back and I had hers. We were brothers and sisters in Christ. In church, we're going to fight like brothers and sisters sometimes. It's just going to happen. We're going to disagree. We've been through a pretty hard season in our church, and I know that not everybody has agreed. But in a church, you love each other because you're family. You're brothers and sisters. You're loyal. We're loyal in our service of one another. We're loyal in our gathering together. Have you ever gone to a family reunion and you were so looking forward to somebody being there and they didn't show? This is family reunion. Each week we come back from where we've been. It's so disappointing sometimes when I don't get to love on the people who God has made family. We're loyal to the way we treat each other outside of this place. We're not just, hey, I'm your best friend while we're in life group together, but when we get to school, eh. Yeah. We're loyal. And we want to take the lead in honoring one another. Your Bible might say we want to outdo each other in honoring one another. We want others to get the best seat. We want others to be first in line. We want others to get out of the parking lot before us. Maybe. We don't like indiligence. We're fervent in spirit. We serve the Lord. If it's true that our sin separates us from God, and it is, and if it's true that only Jesus' death can pay the price for our sin, and it is, and if it's true that only through faith in what Jesus has done can we be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life, and that's also true, then everything else in life is secondary. And there ought to be an intensity about our faith that's contagious. Uh, Nuno, thanks for making my job easier today. I feel like I can mess up four or five times now and I'll be fine. I got at least two, I know of, maybe. But uh, uh, I want you to know I love his spirit that he brings in leading worship. 
And what you see here, the energy he brings and the joy he brings and the enthusiasm and love for one another, he doesn't just display on Sunday. I get the opportunity to see it close up day after day after day after day. And I'm so grateful for that. Because as I see him fervent in spirit and zealous for the Lord, it it convicts me of those moments when I get down in the mouth and I'm not following the Lord. His fervent spirit lifts me up. Uh, That's the way we should be in the Lord. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. It's so encouraging when you see somebody who's gone through a hard time, affliction, things that they can just hope end. If they're faithful, boy, that's encouraging to other believers. We share with the saints in their needs. And when we share with one another, it not only helps the person in need, it gives glory to Jesus and it lifts us up. When we fight for the church and the community of faith like this and we do these things, it builds loyalty and it builds camaraderie and God gets glory as it builds unity in our church. We pursue hospitality. Uh, When was the last time you invited somebody over to your home who's a part of the body of Christ? Or, hey, let's go out and get something to eat. I'm going to do a sermon series at the beginning of June entitled Open House. And I'm going to talk about what the Bible teaches about the, hosp- the role of hospitality in the gospel. But the work of becoming family can't simply be done by looking at the back of other people's heads and saying hello with a smile. It's, it's deeper than that. Now, the real test of Christian community is how do you respond to those who are harder to love? And we start in verse 14, and... He's going to shift in about the middle of verse 16 and start talking about people who aren't church members. And we know that because you get to chapter 13 and he's talking about how we respond to government who's not believers. But we think he stops talking about church relationships about the middle of verse 16. But, but this phrase is weird when you think about it in context of church. He said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Well, hopefully there's never any physical persecution that happens in church. But sometimes people in church say mean things. Sometimes they do harsh things. How do we respond? For preachers, the persecution often comes in anonymous letters. And they're rarely good. You know, if you, if you said something in your sermon or somebody doesn't like the direction the church is going or, or, or somebody is upset that you didn't wave in them in the hallway, they send a letter and they don't sign their name to it. And you know those are always so pleasant. You can imagine. Uh, Somebody posted online this week, this week, about a sermon I preached back in December about Christmas. And I made an offhand comment about a uh, movie. And they took offense to it. I, I didn't think anything about it, but they did, obviously. And they posted on our Facebook page, and they posted something that was like this. You told my kids to go watch a certain movie. That was, that was out of bounds. And they said, this is what is wrong with the Southern Baptist Convention, and this is why people are going to hell. I was frustrated. 
Number one, that wasn't my intent. I didn't want you to go watch that movie. I just said I'd watched it. Wasn't my intent. I'd only watched the TV version, by the way, so I don't know. But the second thing is, they didn't pick up the phone and call me. They didn't email me directly. They just put it out there publicly. And you know what was frustrating? I looked at their account, and it looked like it was a fake account because I knew the person. And it said they were from Georgia, but they live across town. Well, I I didn't respond. I thought that would be the wrong thing to do. I just made it a public example in my sermon on Sunday. (laughs) That seemed much more appropriate, you know. (laughs) Uh, No, we just deleted the message. We weren't trying to make a, a stand. We just deleted the message. But I thought, how different would that have gone if they'd have just picked up the phone and called? It seemed cowardly to not talk to me directly. And, and truthfully, what I've found is when you don't talk to people directly, you're a lot meaner. You're much nicer when you talk in person. So I encourage you to do that. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. If there's somebody really hurting, don't run the other way. Don't keep them at arm's length. Mourn with them. But you know what I found? This top part's harder sometimes, isn't it? Somebody says... Hey, I've lost 25 pounds, and you found five? Or, we just paid off my mortgage, and you're a month behind on yours? It's tough. I got the promotion, and I got passed over. But the Bible says we're brothers and sisters. We should rejoice. You say, nobody does that. Sure they do, all the time, if they're your family. If your kids are succeeding and you're struggling, I found we still rejoice with our kids. If our parents are doing well and we're scraping by, we're happy for our parents because they're family. Church should be that type of family. And it says, we're going to close here, we need to live in harmony with one another. A healthy church is filled with people who are trying to do that. That's who they are. They're trying to do that because they share this common bond in Christ, even though they're different. So I want to give you two keys, and then we're going to wrap up to to how you can develop this type of community. Number one, you just have to remember that relationships like like this take time. Uh, Healthy church members develop over time. This type of community that we want is not popped in a microwave. It's slow cooked in a crock pot. It just takes time. Through life seasons of ups and downs, joys and hardships, this type of community is made up of people who are in life together for the long haul, and this is not easy because people disappoint, people sin, people will frustrate you, people have quirks, but God has chosen a community of people to help you to become like him. And the only way you're going to make it for the long haul is if you see your commitment to your church, family, as a big deal. Healthy church relationships are kept through church covenants. If every marriage ended after its first fight or its first disappointed or its first first disappointment or its first inconvenience, the divorce rate would be 100%. But we don't get divorced whenever somebody doesn't put the clothes away the way we used to. We don't get divorced whenever somebody says a sharp word that first time. Because we've made a covenant. In the same way, 
If the church is going to be strong, then we have to see ourselves as members of one another. We're joined together, inextricably woven together as a group by God, making a covenant together that I'm going to keep my end of the deal, that I'm going to be faithful, that I'm going to make it better. And that's one of the reasons we ask people to join our church. We ask people to say, I'm committing to be a part of this group, good or bad. See, church is not a take-it-or-leave-it uh, uh, community. It's family. Now, I know for some of you, membership's strange. Some of you don't know if it's biblical, and I, I actually respect that opinion. But others resist joining because they approach the church with a consumer mindset. They don't want to belong. They don't want expectations placed on them. They they want to receive something, and, and hopefully it's a good something, biblical teaching and, and strong worship, but, but the overall approach is consumeristic. And, and by the way, I, I want to make sure you hear this. I'm really proud to be an American, and our capitalistic system is a part of who we are, and I'm grateful for that system. And I am a consumer in many ways. I'm a consumer when I buy my car. I was a consumer when I was buying my house. I'm a consumer when I buy my french fries. You know, I am a consumer. I want the best product for the best value. But when it comes to covenantal relationships, consumerism doesn't work. It doesn't work in your marriage. It doesn't work in your families. And it doesn't work in your church. The church is not a group of loosely connected takers. It's a group of family, body-like givers. And I pray that's what God finds here. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that uh, you'll help us to understand who you are and what you've done for us and what that should mean in our relationship to one another. God, I ask that you would help our church to be people who sacrificially, loyally serve one another and love one another. Lord, we are centered in Christ. God, I pray that you would help help us, Lord, to let our relationship with one another be driven by him. It's in Jesus' name I pray.